first question always is, yeah. what's your first memory of football and who was your first hero? Uh, first memory of football was going to Anfield with my granddad, um, who lived more or less opposite the ground, you know. And he took me to a reserve game, and I always remember it because I was thinking, where's the crowd? There was no crowd there, you know. And uh, what, I year sat, the, what year would that be? Uh, early 60s, but um, I sat on a crash barrier. And the reason I remember it is because I fell off the crash barrier and split my head open. So that's my first memory, really. Uh, then my dad started to take me to the match. Um, he knew a fella called uh, Roy Shelley. He worked with a fella called Roy Shelley. And Roy Shelley's dad was a fella called Albert Shelley. He was an old trainer, magic sponge man, from the 50s and 60s, you know. Uh, he probably retired by then, but he still hung, he, he hung around the ground. And when I was doing the boot room, boys, I got, I got a great photograph of him in like a, in a, a brown and white Max, you know, like you know the trainers, you know. They look like as if they're working in a workshop, you know. But anyway, I used to get tickets f off him. So uh, my dad was a season ticket holder in the Cameron Row, which has been built. But my first games were probably late sixties. I remember going and. Um, uh, going in the obstructed view in the main stand and it was a bit um, there was no one around because no one sat in the obstructed view you know and the crowds were like you know they were big but they weren't sellouts all the time you know but I also remember right next to the obstructed view was the boys pen so we'd get pelted all through the match uh, off the boys pen and I can't remember what they were throwing I don't think it was very, anything very pleasant <laughs> medieval stuff you know but uh, I always remember that and then uh, that was my first memories. Can't remember much about the games. I think I was there. I think my dad said I was there when Gary Sprague threw threw it in his own net, and when Tony Haitley scored a hat trick, I think against Newcastle. But I can't really remember much about them. But remember them slightly, you know. I can remember, but I, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't remember too much about them. But I was always fascinated with the cop rather than the actual match, you know. Uh, so I used to look at the cop and thinking one day I'll be able to go in there, you know, and, uh, and then eventually I did. And I think the first season I decided, I went in the Anfield Road about 71 and then Liverpool played Everton in 71 uh, and we were all kids at the front. Uh, and then Everton fans came in about 10 to 3, 5 to 3. Not much has changed. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as they came in, you know, singing Everton songs and all that, there was all bottles came from the back of the Anfield Road to the front. And luckily I didn't get hit by one, but there was a women and kids by me were going down get hit by bottles. So I thought, it's a bit dangerous in here, isn't it? So I thought I'll go in the cop. So uh, first season I went in the cop was 72, 73. It might have been the end of 72, but I can't really remember. But I'd sit on a, ca on a barrier in the middle of the cop. So it was about, um, there was a walkway two thirds of the way up of the cop. So the neck, the first barrier, away from that I'd sit on it and we a few of my mates would sit on it so we'd sit on a barrier and everything was great so we were playing Stoke West Ham you know West Brom you know Leicester everything was great you know and then we played Man United I can't remember the exact game but I know Charlton and Best definitely played in it and about again from 5 to 3 10 to 3 a big sway happens and we got you know we went off the crash barrier now usually if you're playing a lower team you just get back on it It'd easy to get back on it, but I couldn't get back to it because it was so tight, you know. And uh, 
unbelievably had to be passed over the heads, much to my embarrassment. But it happened to me mum in the 50s. She'd gone the match with me dad and her sister and her fella at the time. And they'd been passed over the top. So it was like a family tradition, women and children. <laughs> and what is it? Did you become aware of um, terrorist culture? What's become known as terrorist culture? I don't just mean trainees and jeans or the yeah. trabs and coats. Uh, uh, the, the kind of the, all the kind of rituals that go with football. I think uh, it was definitely Jordan when I was at school, and uh, there was like everyone in our school. There was two. There was two tribes in our school. There was skins and trogs, uh, or gribos, but they were mainly called trogs. You know, uh, the trogs were into Pink Floyd. You know, whatever, and the uh, the skinheads and smoothies were into like soul music and that. So that was the first indication, and they a lot of them went to match. The trogs didn't go to match, but the smoothies and skins did go to match. You know. What school were you at? I was at the uh, Savio Salesian. Oh, Salesian, Salesian yeah, yeah, Brutal, yeah. So um, a few of us went to match. I'd say, uh, you know, out, out of Jimmy our year. Too. Yeah, out of our year, probably about ten went to match to Liverpool. Probably about twenty, thirty went to the Everton games. Was that because of the Catholic Protestant split? I think. You think? I think. Ever, I think. Um, I think Everton was. Everton were more popular than Bootle for some reason. I don't know why. You know, can't really explain it. And I've looked into it, and there's no real explanation. You know, uh, but Everton seemed to be popular, and all the priests seemed to be Everton fans. You know, and the priests would punish you related to football. So there's just one priest called a particular nasty piece of work called Father Erskine. And for any minor misdemeanor, it's a hey you boy at the back, you know whatever. It's a uh, get on your knees, you know. And who'd you support? And he said Liverpool. He'd make you go on your hands and knees to the front of the class, and then he'd say, um, "Okay, repeat after me. Everton are the greatest." And if you refused, you know, he'd, he'd slap you on the head or give you the cane or whatever. It was a big. It was a big piece of leather that they used to have, like, which looked like a medieval torture instrument. But, uh, but uh, so that was the fair, you know. I was aware that, like, uh, at the time, you know, the skinheads tended to be into football and smoothie. So that was the first manifestations of culture. So then I started going to away matches. So that would have been about, uh, Let's say 74, maybe 75, I started going to away matches, and then you realised that there was a certain look people had, and it was mainly, you know, it was what Man United fans at the time were like the Tartan Army. They had lots of Tartan on, but that was, we thought that was more of a like a, something from Glasgow or Belfast, you know. Liverpool fans still had wide trousers, you know, and Birmingham bags or whatever, and, you know, but uh, didn't tend to get into Tartan, you know, for some reason. I don't know why. But then about, um, so I knew there was a fashion at the match then, and also that music was important because people were always um, repeat, you know, they were putting words to popular songs, you know, which had happened in the 60s, of course. I always remember a band of gold playing, uh, and I feel all the time. I don't know, I don't know if it was George, because he's been there since 71, so it must have been him. But I was thinking, you know, that's like a skinhead song, isn't it? You know. Like a smoothie song, and I think all the cop are like skinheads or smoothies, and that. And it, I always remember, and there was another song called uh, 
Eight Man by the Kinks, that was always getting yeah, played yeah. as well, you know. So they were the two songs that stood out, but then you started to get um, Sweet and Blockbuster and all songs like that, and uh, Thin Lizzy, you know. So that was creeping into terrace culture as well, you know. So it was, it was difficult, you know, but I'd say I was, I was fascinated by then, you know, but because everyone's always fascinated by the people who went in the middle of the cop, you know, that's probably why I sat on the, on the bar, you know. And when people say, oh, they started the songs and they started whatever, like, and like, you think, is this all apocryphal or what? Because there was a few lads by us who were older than us who did start all the songs and, uh, and they stopped going in the 80s. I've never seen them since, you know, but... Um, so, yeah, I was, I was interested in terrorist culture, you know, and I was also interested in music. So I think the, the things overlapped, you know. And, and you were quite early on that... Liverpool fans were different to fans of other clubs. I know your friend, former manager Kevin Sampson, writes in away days about yeah. you could tell exactly where people were from with the kind of kecks that they were wearing. And, you know, yeah. you know, could could you? I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a funny phrase now on Merseyside, but could you spot wolves a mile off? Um, I, I wouldn't say it depends what period you're talking about. But if you're talking about the mid seventies, Liverpool fans weren't that different from other fans. I'd say. We felt we were wittier and we had better songs. And if the cop had never sing other songs that other clubs would sing, you know. Uh, but I think generally football fans tended to look the same, you know. They tended to look like, you know, budgie jackets and penny down, you know, Birmingham bags. It wasn't really till about 76, 77, Liverpool fans adopted another look and that was like the... Uh, uh, certainly 76, 77 was the um, uh, the snorkels and they weren't, they weren't green snorkels, they were blue snorkels they were the type of they were the snorkels that your mum would dress you for school uh, and then people started wearing gloves, woolen gloves you know, and then balaclavas and it was all based upon what your mum used to put on you when you were going to school and you were 8 or 9 but now people were 16, 17 it was like an anti <coughs> it was like an anti, you know a, a fashion and the duffel coat craze, but it all probably changed for Liverpool probably on mass about '77. I remember my mum, my mum's sister, uh, my auntie Teresa, who's still alive by the way, but she was like working in uh, a shop in town. I think it was called Bins. Yeah, it was Bins. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, they did the jeans. She kept they? on saying, uh, "Peter, what's all this about these Fred Perry's?" And this was, it must have been the summer of '77. She said, "We we would put them out on the shelves." And within a few minutes, they've gone, you know. I said, oh, yeah, everyone's wearing Fred Perry's and that. And that was probably about 77, you know, but that was a craze which happened over that summer because the short-sleeved polo shirts, you know. Then people by 77, 78 season, later on, after the summer, the autumn and the winter, turned to other, other things, you know. And there was definitely a punk look about it. I used to wear plastic sandals. Lots of Liverpool fans used to wear plastic sandals, duffel coats, um, mower jumpers, straight jeans. But straight jeans at the time, everyone around the country used to laugh at them because they were, yeah, look, you know, uh, they used to laugh. And a lot of Liverpool fans did. You know, the older school, they didn't have a clue what was going on. Because it, yeah, it was a very effeminate look. And if you look at some of the photography from that period, everyone looks very effeminate. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the wedge hairstyle. You know, jumpers, uh, 
lambs wool sweaters or whatever, straight jeans, training shoes, snorkels, but then cagoules. It just depended on what season it was, but obviously snorkels and duffer coats in the winter and cagoules in, in the summer and spring and autumn, you know, so it depended on what time, but there was certainly a look there. And uh, certainly when um, I went to a couple of uh, Bowie, ferry, uh, Bowie Ferry nights in Pips in Manchester. So they had certainly a load of people who looked like that as well. And we had a club in town called Checkmate, which is where people used to congregate. There was a bar called Scarlet's Bar, which was just behind Rigby's Hack and Tay. Yeah. And that's where everyone used to go. But then a club opened called uh, Checkmate. Well, it was called Checkers originally. But it, had a, it was a disco club. And you had to have a shirt and tie to get in, you know. But on there was a landing into another area and in this other area I don't know if it was uh, someone who was to do with Eric's the Adams uh, Roy Adams who was running Eric's at the time they turned that into like an alternative music Bowie, Roxy you know The Clash The Normal all that type of stuff getting played Steel Pulse you know it was absolutely fantastic music policy but all the squares had come over the landing to sort of like laugh at the the Bowie freaks, what they thought, you know, but not realising they were dealing with fucking seasoned hooligans in the match, you know. So there was murder, and they had to cut, they had to basically, they had to block it off. So there was no light, so it was, became two clubs. Uh, I've never seen a fight in there after that, because everyone who went to match, Everton and Liverpool, would then would end up going there. Now people might go to Eric's for a, a concert, but Eric's ale was terrible, and it was in plastic glasses, so no one would stay there. And it wasn't a place where girls went either. You just go for the gig and then get off. The real loons, punks, would go to the Swinging Apple, which is, I think, where Joe Stummel was taken. But the Swinging Apple was full of, like, punks, teds, skinheads. A pretty nasty place, you know, and it wasn't it wasn't football-related at all, really. Well, people did go there, but they didn't stay there long, I don't think, you know. Yeah, so basically, we checkmate, checkmate became our club, you know, a KR club. You know. One of the things I'm interested in is the culture of buses. It's still very persistent in, in, in Scotland, in Glasgow, where people go on the same bus year after year after year, and they have, you know, they go to one another's weddings, and they go out to places, and they, 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 they develop a music policy. Was the same thing going on whenever you were going away, that, you know, you were listening to alternative forms of music, and people were swapping music, and you were getting a kind of cultural diet from actually going to football? Yeah, no, we, I mean, I said go on coaches. There was coaches called Crown Coaches and Lorison's Coaches, but we didn't have any influence on the music policy. All I remember was once going down to Wembley, and Rock Your Baby was on all the time. And this fella at the back, he was older than us, a bit of a loon, just sang it all the time, all the way there and back. I can't hear that song ever again. Uh, but no, it wasn't, because we were going on the trains by then. We always went on the trains because, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, there's something about the trains, you know, they were quicker. Uh, you could get to London in, in a few hours, you know. So coaches, coaches were all right for Midlands and, Leeds and Manchester maybe, but most people tended to go on the trains and there was two types of trains, there was the special train or the ordinary train and the ordinary was basically what it was, it wasn't a football special so people started, I'd say by the late 70s people were going on the ordinary trains you know, and, and basically going all around the country on them you know. And so when did uh, activism <coughs> and football come together for you for the first time? Because I know that you worked as a, uh, a youth worker in yeah. Cantrell Farm and 
was that the period whenever activism came into your life and when did the football and activism come together? No, when we were touring the end, it, it wasn't really a... F- so just to explain, the end was a yeah. famous Liverpool fanzine which yeah. you were on the editorial board of. Yeah, the, the end was a, f- you know, a, a Liverpool and Everton fanzine because we didn't really mention football much. It was observational humour about what went on in Liverpool. So um, we wanted it to be about football and music, but we weren't specifically club-related. So the end was something which was something that we did, but it was a fanzine really, and it wasn't meant to put any political pressure. It wasn't It wasn't like the football fanzines of the later 80s, which were f- active, active. Ours was basically uh, satirical. We just took the, the piss out of everything that moved. So every sacred cow in the city, the people regarded as like, you know, icon of the city, we would just try and destroy, you know. And that's why we got to know John Peel, because we sent him a letter, and I sent him a letter about uh, taking the piss out of him playing Georgian folk music, you know. So believe it or not, you know, it's not very popular. And we sent him this sarcastic letter, and he, he said, he, out of all the letters he'd ever got over the years, he thought, who are these people, you know? He said, this is exactly the type of letter I would have written to a boring old DJ, you know? So he raised the meters, you know? So I wouldn't say it was active... Uh, on politically as such, but it was active in the fact that it, it, it encouraged people to write who went to football matches. And I think that a lot of fanzines came out of it, you know, uh, Boys Own in London came out of it. Uh, when Skies are Grey, the Everton fanzine still going, that that was inspired, That the end inspired that. I think it just inspired people to write. So if that's activism, yeah, it was activism, but... It wasn't uh, based upon change your policy at the club or whatever, you know. I mean, the only, the only ever time that we ever were political was when John Barnes was getting abuse, you know, and we put some things in the magazine then, you know. <clears throat> and also after Heysel, we put a couple of things in about uh, yeah, the people who'd been sent back to uh, Belgium, you know, um, the 14, you, you know, just a couple of things. And it wasn't... <clears throat> they weren't editorials, it was just, it was just pieces about this is where they are. If anyone wants to write to them, here's the address, you know. And that was the furthest we got, really. It was anti establishment, uh, certainly anti everything about, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the mainstream, you know. So I think it was hard. I think some people said it was almost impossible to navigate because a lot of the times we had like this ins and outs column. But anything that was fashionable. You invented that. Yeah, yeah. We t- it was a piss take on, uh, like the face. We were saying what's going to be, you know, the autumn or what colours in now or whatever. So we invented it, but um, it was based upon anything that people, the masses, would see as fashionable. We'd put it in the out column, you know, just to confuse everyone. Sometimes things were in the ins and outs column in the same issue, you know. So it just depended. I think the idea of the ins and outs, it didn't matter which column it was in. It was just funny when you read it, you know. So. But in this world of everyone making a podcast, like we, yeah. we were sitting here talking about making podcasts on Apple, on iPhones, and we're talking about DIY culture, and it's never been easier to do something yourself. Mm, yeah. What was the process of putting a fanzine together in the old analogue days of photocopiers and all that kind of stuff like and chasing yeah. people for copy and all well, that kind of stuff the early days of the fanzine it seemed like because uh, I was a youth working council farm I knew this lad who was a mod 
who lived in Steerscoff Cancel Farm, which was the area that I worked in. I was something they call a detached youth worker, so I didn't have a youth club. I was just said, there's your estate, get on with it, you know, go into pubs, wherever young people meet, because they don't tend to go to youth clubs. So I thought, well, it's an ideal opportunity. I think Phil was 17. I was a, I was a few years older than maybe 20, you know, whatever. But I wasn't that much older because I knew him from town, you know. And I thought, it'd be, if he's done a fanzine when he's 17, he must be a genius, you know. And he's got this fanzine together, done it himself. And he's stenciling it, you know, and I thought, there must be a way we can, we can put a fanzine together. Uh, which would involve music and football, and like I'll ask, I'll ask uh, Phil if he wants to get involved. And the idea then was that people in the area, working class people, will encourage them to write, do poetry, short stories, whatever you know. And I think that came from a, a community background. Of, I'd read about community papers. There's the Scotty Press that still going still now, going, yeah. and there was other other magazines uh, which were like campaigning newspapers. Uh, so I think I'd read about them. I thought, well, that's a good idea. And I was, you know, I was interested in politics. So I thought, like, well, let's have a go. Here. So then we, we we looked around where to go, and there was a place called the Victoria Settlement on Netherfield Road. And we thought, well, they'll be able to help us out. You know, they've got a printing press, and we'll do something. You know, so the fella there was going to help us out, and he we asked him what we had to do. He told us what we had to do. So we went back and did it. And then we were asking him for a front cover and that, and we were saying, look, we want to get the magazine out, where's the front cover and that? And uh, he said, oh yeah, I'm working on it, working on it. And he did the front cover. But um, not long after he'd done the front cover, he, he committed suicide, believe it or not. You know, we were like devastated. We were thinking, because well, we were hassling him, was he, you know, whatever. But he was one of the teachers there, you see. Uh, and that became, so that was our teacher who, he, he killed himself, you know, we, we had no one, so then we found out that there was an organisation called Impact in town, which was funded by the John Moores Foundation, and that was there to help community newspapers, help them lay it out, and, and they basically taught us. So me and Phil Jones went in, and they taught us how to lay out into three columns, and uh, how to do the photographs in there. And uh, they put a lot of effort into it, and we were like... We, so the second issue, was laid out in the, the classic three columns with photographs. Now, I'd been to see The Clash in Paris in 81, and I had a load of photographs uh, of them backstage, because they were on for seven nights in the Mogadore Theatre with Pete Wiley and The Beat. So I saw them six out of the seven nights. I didn't go the fifth night, because I thought, I want to enjoy the sixth and seventh. I don't want to go at all. So, um, so I went for, seven, uh, for the six out of seven nights, but I got loads of great photos, and the tour manager was a scouser. So he let me in every night, and I had a backstage pass, and I was in the dressing room with The Clash and Joe Strummer, and one day they came in, and I was helping myself to their rider, like bananas or fruit, and I, and I went, oh, sorry, lads. And he went, he said, no, you, you help yourself, we're The Clash, you can have what we have, you know, and that, that, that's what their attitude was, and I thought, what a brilliant attitude, and I've got to get this into the magazine, you know. So then the second issue come out, and that was the three layer, three columns, and it looked professional, like you know, it looked better than the stencil fanzines that everyone was throwing out, you know. So uh, from that day on, you know, we, we we knew how to lay it out, and we knew how to, uh, you know, to get it into shops, and we knew how to sell it at the match. And first few issues were difficult to sell, but 
by the third or fourth, maybe the fourth or fifth, sorry, uh, people were coming to us. So you'd just go into a pub with a bag full of pens and everyone would come round, you get us one lad there. I think they were 25 pence, 30 pence or whatever. So it felt like something was happening, you know. And then we were selling them at away matches. So we'd give an Evertonian 100 to sell on the special for Everton. And then same with Liverpool, we'd sell them on the Liverpool trains. And then we we tried to sell them in the kiosks at Lime Street. And, and someone did take 300 once and he sold them and he said, God, they flew out. He said, but I can't take it anymore. I'll get sued. I'm just ready. <laughs> and it was all, there was loads of libel stuff in there, of course, but no one's going to sue you if you've got a circulation of a few thousand, you know, so. And what did it teach you whenever you came to do the band? Um, it taught me how to doorstep people, really. Every interview that I did, and I saw this through the clash because I got into the Mogador Theatre in Paris for those five, six out of seven nights. Is that if you go to see someone in the middle of the afternoon, they'd be sound checking, the security won't be there, and they'll just do an interview with you to get rid of you. And so that's what we did. So we'd go and the um, undertones, Billy Bragg, you know, uh, uh, Madness, Black, you know, lo- loads of different, you know, we, we weren't writing off to the, Management, we were just going, where are they playing? We'll go there. We went to see Alexi Sale in Manchester. He had a terrible flu book and that. And he just couldn't wait to get rid of us, you know. But, but he did the interview, you know. And so people were thinking, how are you getting these interviews? And we were basically doorstepping them when we knew they were vulnerable. So that taught us, you know. The, you know but it didn't really teach us much about I mean, for John Peel, always used to say, like, I can't give you the session until you get a good few reviews and the enemy and the sounds and the melody maker. He said, because I like, you know, I love the end and all that, and I like the music, what you're doing, but it's got to be independent. People say, you're just giving your mates sessions, you know. So I got a review and uh, we got a review in the enemy done by a fellow called Kevin McMallis, who's the head of music yeah, now. Yeah, I remember. And uh, it was a very complimentary review, so we said, okay, I'll give you the session, you know. Um, I think what it taught us to do is like we, we didn't really have idols, you know. We didn't really look up to people, you know. I think when we were, because we were so cynical, you know, all our all our life had been about, you know, uh, satire, you know, taking the Mickey out of people. And I think we realised that you know these are the same as us, you know. I mean, nice people, but you know they've got like you know you can you can have a laugh with them, you can whatever. So we always based it upon. Uh, the personality, you know. I don't think uh, I don't think it really helped the farm. In, in, fa- in many ways, it probably re- you know it didn't help us because the end was so popular. People said, "Oh well, you know the band, you know it's just." You know, we never really publicised the farm in the end. I mentioned it a couple of times, but I didn't want to publicise because I didn't want to see it to be a vehicle. And I'd seen groups like uh, Cockney Rejects and groups like that associate themselves with football. So I didn't want that either, you know. I didn't want to be able to not be able to play in certain cities because they go, oh, these are scousers, you know. So we did play in Leeds once, mid-80s, by 86, I think it was. And we were in a bar opposite the venue and all these lads were coming up to the venue and they all looked like football types, you know. And it was the Leeds service crew, basically. It was their hardcore. And I thought, uh, and it's not because I'm brave or not, I just thought, we better find out whether they'd come to to batter us, you know. And I went over to the bar with one other lad, uh, not because the others didn't want to go, I just thought best just one or two of us, because if a load of us go over, 
you know, it might be a conversation. I bet it was you yeah. and Roy. No, it was me and uh, I can't remember who it was. But, it wasn't uh, your face player. He wasn't going to help you. No, out well, no, like. no, yeah, Carl would, I would have thought. I think it was a saxophone player at the time called Snowy. He'd been in China crisis, you know, and he was pretty, uh, you know, he, he was pretty persuasive when he was talking. And so I think me and him went over and, you know, so, so I said, but uh, what are you what are you here for? I said, you know, we come see farm. He said, yeah, have you come see farm? I said, yeah, I'm the singer. He said, ah, no. he said, have you come? He said, uh, they bring a coach with them, don't they? You know, they thought the coach loads of scousers were coming, so maybe that's why they were there. But they convinced us within a few minutes that they'd listened to John Peel sessions on the ad and they knew the songs, so it was great. And from that time on, in Leeds, we were like, you know, we were uh, very popular, you know. Uh, with that type of crowd, you know, and I think people remember those days, you know, and a lot of them read the end as well, because the more we took the piss out of Leeds, the way they dressed, the more they wanted the end, you know, and they'd they write in, we, that's wrong, we don't do this, you know. And then we had people writing in from all, all around the country. Uh, we had the Derby Lunatic Fringe, that was a particularly funny letter. We had the Derby Leicester Alliance, which I was in Leicester at Boxing Day. I was talking to some of the old baby squad lads who, who were in the baby squad dudes and they're, you know, all in the 40s, 50s now, whatever, but I said, was this true, the Derby Leicester? He went, oh, yeah, Derby Leicester Alliance against Notts Forest. And it was true, and they told me all about it. We couldn't believe it, you know, but... Yeah, so, in that respect, I think we were being active, but we didn't realise we were being active, if you know what I mean, you know? So, when did sort of football and activism come together for you. You were a founding member of the Spirit of Shankly and yeah. I've seen you being involved in, even before that, in terms of sp talking about a union for football fans. Yeah, it was um, like all these things. It's, it was down to conflict uh, and it was down to Hicks and Gillette come to um, buy out the club, leveraged buy out and uh, I think David Moores felt as if he couldn't compete with the likes of Chelsea so we had to get more investments in that. But he could, he could have gone to a bank as well and, and got the loans, but maybe didn't want to take that risk. I don't know. Uh, but Picks and Gillette came, and I was very suspicious because I, you know, and I looked at them and thought, these shouldn't be getting a hero's welcome, these, you know, because, you know, uh, be careful what you wish for, you know, because does this mean if Adolf Hitler flew in today, we'd send a limousine anyway? And I actually wrote an article. I think it was for Gutter Snipe or one of the fanzines saying, you know, be careful what you wish for, you know, does this mean? Because I didn't want... Uh, Sinawatsa was looking at Liverpool as well. When he was looking at City, he was, he was looking at Liverpool, you know. I thought that'll be a kiss of death, you know, with, you know, with his human rights record and all that. And I didn't want oil money from the Middle East. So really we had this very, uh, you know, uh, idealistic view of what should be a football club, so it should be, you know, should be the likes of David Moore's lending off the banks and come from, uh, you know, come from everyone getting behind the team. And uh, um, so when Hicks and Gillette took over, I did a little bit of, you know, looking into them, and I thought, you know, these, you know, they said they're not going to put debt on like the Glazers did at United, unless it's, and, but the way Hicks was, I hated John Wayne, even though I'd loved him as a kid, I ended up hating John Wayne what he stood for, you know. He just reminded me of John Wayne. And every time I saw him on the telly, it was John Wayne again, you know. And there'd been a song, hadn't there? Uh, big, uh, there'd been a punk song about John, John Wayne. John Wayne, Big Leggy. Big Leggy, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I just thought, no, no, he can't be in control, you know. And he was getting lauded. 
before the Athens 207 Cup final. You know, he was getting lauded in, in the streets, you know, you know, and everyone's made up with him. But I was, I started doing a bit of digging in what he'd done, and he'd had a failure in South America and Brazil, and thought, these people, these are chances. I just thought they would, straight away, I just thought they've, you know, they've got a holding company, you know, and they've uh, leveraged it, you know, but they pretended not to by chicanery, by clever accounting, you know, and having, for him. anyway, it transpired. I think somebody at the club uh, tipped a few people off from fanzines. From the f- end wasn't going by then, but I was on a, a couple of forums, read all over the land. There was red and white cop. There's a few various forums. Then all the, the people, yeah, the rattle, yeah, read all over the land. There's the rattle. So oh, right there's ver- various forums, and uh, people started to be fed information. So uh, Benitez was saying, "This is not nothing's right here," because he. He'd actually spent, after he got beaten Athens, uh, he wanted to, he put his wish list of players in, and I think they bought Torres, didn't they? But that was the only one he was allowed, you know, and this idea that they were going to start getting three or four players of that ilk. So we decided there's a big uh, debate going on in forums, phone calls, everyone was talking about having a mass meeting, you know. Uh, and that's what we decided to do. And we had the mass meeting in the spiritual home, which was the Sandon. Now, there was about four or five, I'd say about, no, about maybe ten to a dozen people who, were, who, who felt they were organising it, you know. And they said, this will be chaos. There'll be, you don't want to be able to chair this because what we should do is we should have a meeting in the front room of the Sandon. And then we're going to tell the mob in the back room what we've decided. I said, you can't do that. Highly democratic. I said, you can't do that. How can you... What makes you think you can do that? He said, no, it'd be chaos otherwise. So I said, I'll get you a chair. And I'll get you a good chair, you know. So I rang up Paul Rice. And Paul Rice was head of bid at the time. But, you know, the Liverpool bid. Yeah, business uh, improvement district. Yeah. But he was also a big Liverpool fan, and he'd also been active in the Labour Party, and he'd also chaired Broad Green Labour Party in the, in the 80s. And I thought if he can chair Broad Green Labour Party, the home of like uh, you know, uh, well, yeah, you know, it was regarded as the home of Mill. If he can chair that and keep all the factions together, he can chair anything. So I rung up Paul, and Paul said, Ah, Peter, I can't. I'm, I'm the head of the business district now. I can't really be getting in. He said, look, Paul, we've got to save the club. We've heard all this. So he must have made a few phone calls. I don't know who he phoned, but he must have phoned a few journalists to find out. And he phoned back and said, I'll do it. But just this once. I'll only chair this one meeting. And You know, even two and a half years later, he's on the steps of uh, St George's Hall, 2010, July the 4th, our independence rally. You know, making the greatest speech you'll ever hear, you know. So he didn't, he carried it on, you know. But I think it was important to get the calibre of the likes of Paul Rice involved, you know. And a lot of the people in the early days involved had been active in the Labour Party. They'd been active in the Labour Party Young Socialists, you know. And they had a bit of a track record of organisation. So you had to deal with all sorts of different factions. But we were trying to keep all the fan base together, you know. Uh, but we wanted it to be democratic, so we wanted mass meetings. We wanted raising our hands. You know, we wanted it. We wanted it to be a lot of the people who decided that at the start that they were going to report back to the masses. They drifted away. They drifted away because they couldn't, you know, control it because it was democratic. Uh, and it was, I'd say, it's gone on to become one of the most active, well thought of fan groups in Europe. And that, I think that's. 
the ground and the people had in uh, in the political ground we had in the 80s through what Liverpool Council went through. You know, now I'm not saying a, a lot of the, we, what we wanted to do is get the younger younger people involved. So Jay McKenna, Fran Stanton, all those came to the fore. You know, uh, and they did brilliantly. They did brilliantly. But um, we wanted them so we could move on. So it was continually updating. But uh, in the end, they, they, they've moved on to other things, to having families and kids and whatever, you know. So it's still active, and it's changed a lot over the years, but um, I think even your most cynical of fan will recognise that it's done some good, you know, because we're a lobby group, you know, and we're, uh, you know, we, we do, uh, a lot of the time, we're meeting with the, with the club, and it's not announced, it's just that we're, we're, we're basically, we're a pressure group. Say you can't do this, you can't, you know, whatever you, you can't do. So uh, I think it's become, uh, it's, had, it's got the respect of the hierarchy of the club, you know. Uh, and also, if needs be, if anything drastically went wrong, and it's not at the moment, I think everyone's working in the same direction. But that's only because of the personality of Klopp, who for me is like a new Shankly, you know. He's, he, he's unbelievable, he's a revolution, you know. He's a whirlwind and he's taken it along because for the first five years, FSG didn't know what they were doing. They were trying to play money ball still. And Klopp's come in and said, look, no, I want to buy a goalie that cost that much and sends it out to Casper. You know, they might be not in your age range of under 25 and coachable, but if we want to win the league, this is what you need. And they've all gone after a few years, let him get on with it, you know. I think that's it. He's in total control of that, you know, and he trusts the recruiting policy. But in the in the end, they know if they tried to like start bumping up the prices or whatever, you know, they, we'd be on the streets again. I think we've still got that clout, you know. I think they realise that. I think the walkout on '77, even though it wasn't uh, it wasn't um, arranged by the SOS, we put our machinery behind it. That was arranged by Spy Cop 1906. Who were lads with the flags? Uh, from whatever reason, they never became active in the spirit of Shankly, but they wanted our support on that. Uh, so they arranged it. And on the day, we were thinking, how many people are going to say, well, 45,000? We'd be lucky if we got a couple of thousand, because we only ever got against Hicks and Gillette, we only ever got 5,000. Which, if you think of it, it's a tenth of the ground, isn't it? That's about it, really. A tenth of the ground. One in ten. <coughs> It was UB40, 1 in 10. 9 out of 10 didn't help us at all, you know. But you won't find anyone now who didn't support us, you know. But um, So on the, on the Warhouse on um, 77. 77... That was over 77. Yeah, it was, but we'd, all, we'd also been... Uh, we'd been um, negotiating with them for 18 months, or representatives from the spirits that Shankly had. Uh, and we had some brilliant ideas, and they were thinking, they must have been thinking, where are they getting these ideas from? They were fantastic ideas, and uh, we were in touch with someone who, who does the ticket at Glastonbury, you know. So we were putting them progressive ideas, and they never went for them. Boston must have overruled it. And if you think at the time, it's Klopp wasn't, Klopp wasn't at the ground that day, which he had a mystery illness, but I think he thought, I'm not going to go against the fans here. I don't want to be answering questions about them, which I think, you know, that's the way he's dealt with it. He wasn't at the ground. Anyway, when the whistle went 77 to walk out, 15,000 people walked out. I don't think, and we couldn't believe it. You know, we couldn't believe it. 
But what they tried to do is bring in a low-level hospitality, we called it, £77, which was uh, a lot more than your average price or your highest price at the time. But we know for a fact that they'd originally wanted that to be £150. It was only through our persuasion that they'd lowered it. But that 150 would be low-level hospitality, yeah, a match day program, and something to you know, a coffee and a pie or something, you know. And they call it low-level hospitality because they'd seen when we nearly won the league in 2013-14, they'd seen the prices the uh, the talks were getting outside, 500 pound for a pair, so they wanted part of that. And now, yeah, they were obviously looking at that and going, you know. If that's what they're paying, people will pay that. £150 low-level hospitality, you know, and they'll yeah. pay. But it was the way they did it, and the fact that they said this is going to be the price of general admission tickets, you know. So we thought, that's the thin end of the wedge. You know, if they get away with this, the tiered pricing had come in. We were told when they first took over, that's what they'd try. And they did, and they didn't have much opposition to that. But trying this, 77, uh, we thought it's outrageous, you know. So... And like everyone else, you know, they seem to agree with us. Within days, they reversed it. And also the Premier League, there was lots of publicity about it. Everyone was ringing up TalkSport and other fans from other... Yeah, it's too expensive. And Because Arsenal was getting to, like, £65 for the, you know, away. So all of a sudden, the Premier League said, away price cap. So that had been arranged by the closed shop, which is the Premier League chairs, who'd all been at a meeting going... The natives are restless. They'd seen, and I think that came. They'd all deny it, but that came from the '77 walkout because they thought if that can happen, that can happen all around the country. Yeah, you can you know. see the twenties plenty in Scotland, and all yeah, those yeah. things coming through now. At the minute, yeah. could you just the last question here, Peter? There's one of the most, one of the the maddest episodes of um, of supporter club relations came whenever you were named. In a club document as a oh, member yeah. of a, a so-called Khmer Rouge. Yeah, yeah. Um, could you talk us through what happened and what you think it did for fan club relations mm. in the long term? Yeah. Um, or what could what can clubs learn from not treating mm. fans in that way? Uh, there was a document which was produced. Um, we could never get to the to the bottom of who produced it, but uh, um, when Paislow came. Uh, to the ground. Now we'd met us in town, Pearslow. Now he was brought in by, I think, the banks, I think the RBS at the time, to to get 100 million investment to keep the club being able to function properly. Instead of getting the investment, he ended up getting involved in club affairs. You know, and he was he was going around suggesting who we should buy. He was trying to go into team talks with Benitez, and Benitez was Rafa Benitez is. His people were feeding us all this information, and so we had a meeting with them in town, um, in the um, in the Cross Keys, and we met them upstairs. And we had the full co- most of the committee there, big turnoff of the committee, probably 12, 14 people there, and he came in with his Cuban heels on, you know, um, and he didn't he didn't park next to the next. We got you know, how'd you get? Oh, I got dropped off around the corner, you know. Anyway, he started swearing. Like a fisherman's wife, you know, and he's like, what are you thinking? Why is he swearing? He said, I'm that fucking same as you. I'm fucking support this team. And we're all all biting our tongue to stop laughing at that. And he kept on going on about, you know, what what he felt for the club and how he loved the club and he was just like us and he'd always supported Liverpool. And 
he loved the club and he was after investment if we just laid off a bit that you know the investors might see the club as more attractive but we're on the streets you know they wouldn't see it as attractive you know and after an hour and a half we just he left and we just went that that's like a play it's like a, it's like David Brent's. It's like book. It's the, it's it's the office on film. You know, it was it was hilarious. You know, um, anyway, unbeknownst to him, we taped it all, so we knew exactly what we'd said and we knew what he'd said. Anyway, we had to agree on minutes, and he sent us these minutes through that he can remember what was said, and they were complete uh, concoction, not unlike the reality. And we said we can't sign off on these minutes, and. We cannot sign off on these minutes. That's not a true reflection of what happened. And so uh, there was a breakdown of communications after that. So I think Danny thought, right, I'll, I'll take these on, you know. Uh, and he, he employed, don't know the timeline, but there was a fella came from Man City called Paul Tyrrell, who was actually a Liverpool fan. And he, was, he had a season ticket in the Cameron Old, I believe, before he became like a, a press person, you know. And the very first day he went in to see Rafa Benitez, uh, he's Paul Tyrrell introduced himself. He said, oh, yes, you're the person, uh, Mr. Paisley was hired to spy on me. <laughs> that was his first words to <laughs> Anyway, it got back to us that after our meeting in town across Keys, that uh, he told Benitez, Paisley told me, oh, I met them rabble last night, uh, SOS, Sons of Strikers. You know, so we, we were getting fed this information. And this was like this was this was brilliant for us. Like we didn't know about the dossier then, but I'd been on LFC TV quite a lot, and I'd always been outspoken about the ownership. Then all of a sudden the phone call stopped. You know, all of a sudden people weren't going on, weren't getting invited on, and that was the start of the war of attrition. You know, and I, I suspected something had happened, but I didn't know anything had ever been put in writing until I think it was after FSG. G took over. I think they, then the dossier appeared that someone had got it because Tyrrell went to work for Everton. And I don't know if they had access to his email or whatever, but it was only ever signed PT. But we suspect, uh, allegedly, it was Paul Tyrrell done it. And it, it was just uh, the, uh, the equivalent of the Khmer key, key Rouge, mass murderers, you know. Yeah. You know he had all his politics. mass murderers. Yeah, he had all his politics all over the place, but he also said. Evans and Hooten conspired because they were both in the ba the farm together. They tried to bring down the Thatcher government by, with their group in pop music. Now they've moved on to football. It was just, it was just, it was like flattering, but absolute concoction. You know, it was, nothing can be further from the truth. I hadn't seen Tony Evans for like 15 years. I'd never seen him. I hadn't talked to him. You know, uh, so we it was putting two and two together and getting eight. You know, uh, and it was when you see the dossier, it it's. It's some. It's like it's almost like uh, it's almost like something Monty Python would do, you know. You know, Terry Jones would have done it. It's absolute hilarity on paper, you know. And um, I think people were upset that they were on the dossier because <laughs> really the dossier was uh, was people who were fighting for the heart and soul of the club. You know, that could have easily been turned around and said these are the people who really care about the club.